This is Lead with a Question. What is so scary? What horrible thing could happen if you empowered people and said, you're smart, we hired you, do the thing. How are we going to grow without everybody's brain power and heart power around this mission? And it's so easy to open that up. It just takes stepping through fear. Hi, I'm Rob Callen. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, connect with guests who embody these principles. And whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. Chris, Ian, and I owe a lot to the thinkers who've inspired us to focus on this work. Sometimes you just come across someone whose insights, vision, conviction, and courage are so powerful that they seem to have their own gravitational field. Isaac Newton once wrote, If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, we recently met one of our giants. Her unique blend of tough love, creativity, and business acumen have positioned her to speak truth to power and boldly invite leaders to get back to the basics. Together, we'll consider the question, what if we made work more human? a table-slapping conversation with Liz Ryan on this episode of Lead with a Question. You know, if being brave is a choice, I could be brave or I could not be brave, we're stepping on a daily basis or even hourly basis toward a situation where it's not going to be a choice. The working world is changing so fast in this direction. We haven't named it, but we, we see it, right? Where it, it will not be optional to be the CEO of your own career. You will not have a choice about that. These recent tech layoffs approaching 200,000 people are, are evidence of that. And every one of those large employers that has just recently laid off 10 to 30,000 employees has DEI, they have great benefits, they have all these great things going on. And yet the bedrock, the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy when it comes to work, do I have the job that I had yesterday is not secure. So what does it tell us as individuals it's on you. It's on you. There isn't that thing, that, 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 that foundation. Um, I'm old enough to remember cradle to grave employment, not me, but my dad who got a job stepping out of college, the GI bill, where they took 16 year olds, whole high school classes. In his case, the whole junior class of his high school, you're at, you're gone. Guys, you're going to you're going to basic training uh, too young to be in combat, but they had them do desk work and they they uh, discharged them right after. I don't know what was the last treaty, but whenever the war was officially over and there's now they're 17 or whatever and they go to college. That is the old America, right? He worked for that company that he started then until he took early retirement in the early 80s. And he told me, a baby HR person in the 80s, it's all changing, Liz. It's going, this thing is going away. They called it Camelot. John and Jackie Kennedy in the White House and woo, we're going to space, Camelot. And for working people, let's be honest, white men in the working world kind of was. And my parents lived on that health insurance from the employer that he left in the 80s until they passed on just a couple years ago. 
free health insurance and, and a repension. It's unthinkable now. So people, working people today, all ages are still looking for that. Still thinking like, I'll get in with a good employer. Yeah, do that. It doesn't make any difference. And that's not cynical or anti-employer. It's just, you have to be equipped. You have to know that you're in charge at every single moment. And the skills that you have to build to be able to do that are fundamentally different skills than the skills you need to do the job. And, and I don't like to see people lulled into this idea that if I get a good performance review, I might get promoted. Yes. And there's still the whole real world right outside your company walls. And you need to understand it way better than you do and yourself and your own marketability and lots of other things that we just tend not really to teach or even to talk about. Well, and, and that's one thing that um, was coming to mind as as you were saying that, Liz, because, you know, I uh, it, it's so hard to feel like you're giving your heart to something um, in terms of your work, but then feel like there's that that potential that it may be in maybe a one sided type arrangement, um, you know, because I've seen people even this week who not two days ago were singing the praises of their company. And today, this morning, we're posting, hey, my job was just eliminated. And so do you have any advice for people to sort of balance that, I guess, arrangement of making your strong contributions, but also in some ways protecting yourself? It's a great question, Rob. We, the post-war boom, post-World War II boom uh, lasted a long time. And it was that cradle to grave employment. And it was, you know, my whole career will be with GE or Kraft General Foods or GM or whatever. And it and it shifted our thinking in a, in 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 some really unfortunate ways, because before that, before that, there was none of this. Our great grandparents were all basically entrepreneurs, but they didn't have or need a fancy French unpronounceable word to define that. They just got up in the morning and did the stuff they needed to do. Could have been two or three things, could have been selling eggs, you know, could have been anything, but it was considered normal adult life to be self-sufficient. We've completely lost that. People don't self-sufficient. I'm self-sufficient. You should see how fast I type and I do some database design. Yay. But who needs that? Who can buy that from you? Because the guy that's, that, that is raising chickens and selling eggs knows who needs the eggs or they wouldn't be doing it. And, and so this idea of, but I love my job. I love my coworkers. I love the work. Uh, Rob, that's where all my energy goes. That is so beautiful. But you know what? You are an independent economic unit out here in the world. And you have to be thinking about that. And not doing that is actually infantilizing yourself. And sadly, a lot of employers infantilize their employees intentionally or not to just forget about all that stuff. And what's really ironic about that is that here in the United States, where this is rampant and you see it on LinkedIn and every social media, we offer, you know, your birthday off and we offer this, all this great stuff. It sounds like a great company. You have no more protection against the real world there than you do anywhere else. In fact, by virtue of working in the United States, you have much less. My eyes were opened when the company I was working for in 1990 started uh, kind of an acquisition binge. They bought a company in France. And I go over to France like, yeah, hi, I'm the HR lady from Chicago. They showed me their employment contracts. I thought employment contracts were for executives. You guys all have contracts? Yeah, of course. French government requires it. Well, what's in this thing? This is what happens if you get laid off. This is what your job is. This is what your pay is. This is what your hours are. Can't be changed without your consent. Yeah. My mind was blown. And I came back saying, why don't we have that in the United States? You know how much that would help employers if everybody had a contract? All of this stuff that we talk about, quiet quitting and rage applying and all this nonsense in the media right now about people not commit engagement, the whole notion of engagement. Don't get me started. How can we open our mouths and say, why aren't these employees more engaged? I don't know. Maybe it's because your employees in every other single industrialized country outside the U.S. has a contract that guarantees them basic things. And we in the United States don't have it. You really don't get to talk about engagement. Wow. 
right? How come my girlfriend isn't nicer to me? I don't know. I, uh, you treat her like garbage. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I'll look into that. So this is, you know, we talk about leadership, rubber meets the road. I love talking about leadership, but it sits higher on Maslow's hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Does that absolutely. Make sense? Yeah. yeah, I love that. You, you've touched on a lot of themes there. Uh, one, it, you, know, you said that it, they're great themes uh, that I think are really relevant for people right now. And uh, one was, you know, this, and especially in these, I think even in tech companies, especially where, you know, they've taken on that role of being the parent, right. And, and Hey, offering up all the benefits and all the you know, things. And yet where are they? Right. It's like the, the, but the parent that abandons like in an instant, right. Like when things are going wrong, it's like, Oh, you're on the street, like good luck. Right. Um, so they're happy to be a helicopter parent when, when it, when things, when the conditions are right, but the next minute not. And then to your point, it's like, how do they, you know, how, how else will we solve for this besides the clarity, right. And having those brave conversations about what is real and what's not, what can be done, what can be offered, you know, for, for people in their careers. Uh, I love that. And, you know, I, I guess I'd be curious, like how, how do we get that, get that started uh, and get, get leaders moving in that direction and, and people moving that direction. Well, um, I have gotten a few employers, not not multinationals, but not global corporations, but um, smaller organizations, so founder CEOs, to give their employees that that same thing. It doesn't even have to be a formal contract, like like a three or four pages. You could put in an offer letter. Offer letters in the United States say this offer is not to be construed as a contract. Meaning, what's the point of it? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. You could change the terms and conditions the next day and cut the person's pay or change their job. And that's not a healthy situation. So if we're going to talk about organizational health, we have to name the elephant, which is that employers have not had the bravery, the courage to do that in general. But I have, I'm happy that I've helped several client CEOs say, what? you know that this would be a huge recruiting advantage, right? It would, it would not necessarily 100% solve, but make a lot of headway towards solving any engagement problems or commitment problems because you're asking your employees for a lot. So now you're giving them something of real economic and emotional value. You're saying, I'm making a commitment to you. It doesn't say that you'll work here for the rest of your life, but it says if you, if I, if I can't use your services for economic reasons other than for cause, right? You're, I guarantee you three or four or five months pay. That's huge. And, and it doesn't take much. It's an easy thing. So I have to look askance at some of these leaders who write books and make pronouncements and do speeches on leadership. No, baby doll. No, you don't get to be, teach the rest of us about how to lead when you will not make the simple commitment in the United States because the law doesn't require it that you make to your working people in every other country, including the most entry level you know, person in the mailroom, person who waters the plants. Now, come on. Do you see pay transparency being part of that equation as well, Liz? What are your thoughts on that topic? It's not. It's a good thing and a necessary thing. Pay transparency for sure, but it's. Fun. I think it's very different than an actual economic commitment. Um, and what we're seeing with pay transparency right now, Colorado, where I lived for 20 years, we just moved to New York last year. It was one of the first states to say you have to put. Uh, salary range in a job ad. And you can't ask a candidate for a job what they were earning at any past job or what they're what they're earning now. And so we started to see job ads all over the country that said, this job is remote. We welcome candidates from anywhere, but not Colorado. Interesting. Literally in the job ad. Don't bother applying. So so this resistance, you know, when um, clean air uh, requirements, regulations came in, I don't know when, 70s or or seatbelt laws or auto safety laws came in, 70s, 80s. And the, of course, the manufacturers at first were like, Ugh, just more regulation, that's bad. And more restrictions, that's bad. And now they argue for those things and they support them and they want them because they say it makes us better. And if we as leaders could say it's going to make us better, right? Right. If, 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 you know, more guidance, I remember the 90s, when everybody was racing to get certified ISO 9000 and Malcolm Baldridge Award. See, you're too young, Rob. You don't remember because you were 
riding your big wheel and whatnot. You I, know was, what I, mean? I was watching Power Rangers. Yeah. You were watching Power Rangers <laughs> and who wouldn't? But, but everybody wanted that, 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 that guidance and the approval and the recognition that they're doing things, you know, in a really upright way. Malcolm Baldridge's award was a quality award. It's very painstaking to go through the process to get certified as an employer. I remember endless, you know, sort of like training and all this stuff, checklists. But they said, I, we want to step up to that. And we want to be in the arena with the P- other organizations that have done the same thing. So I'm looking for that same energy around our relationships with employees. A lot of people do agile. A lot of people do lean and all this kind of stuff. And there's nothing in that standard about actually how you deal with and treat your employees, which is bizarre because obviously more trust would, would lead to a better result. And so I feel like this thing of the relationship between employers and employees and leaders place in that relationship is really the elephant in the room that we just, we just have to talk about. We got Howard Schultz at Starbucks, just furious, like beyond mad because employees dare to unionize. And he says, they are not us. They are not us. No, they are literally us. <laughs> Those employees <laughs> are the face of Starbucks to the, to the customers. Who's us? How are you and six guys in the, in the executive suite? I mean, who's us? If not them. And to, and to other them, to, to say they are not us. Well, who's us? You and the, and the, and the board. So this is the topic. I mean, for me, this is the only topic. Anything else we might say about leadership? Someone wrote a book. Yay, you wrote a book. Come on. It's easy to write a book when you're when you're protected from the masses of your team by five layers, 10 layers of management. I'm writing a book about my opinions. What are you doing on the ground? They don't matter, right? Mm. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad that unions become the vacuum for what the people experience have, have been. And executives just don't get it. They they think it's an outside threat when really, you know, the internal. The Starbucks union is formed by their own employees. There's no outside mm, union involved. Right. Same with Amazon. That's right. And, and, and I say about unions, if you don't like unions, that's your privilege. You invited them in, babes. Right. On a, with the red carpet. That's right. You invited them in. Well, they didn't force their way. The employees were so frustrated with you, couldn't get through to you. No outlets. So they had yeah. to unionize. You gave them no other choice. Yeah. It's your own. You reap mm. what you sow. Right. What would you recommend to employers as things are transitioning and shifting? And there's a lot of uncertainty of, about the way this is all going to look. What, how would, what would you recommend to them to be more attractive to these employees that are, are, are becoming more self-sufficient or, or, or starting to realize they need to be more independent. How, how can employers attract th- that kind of talent that's out there and forming? That's a, that's a brilliant question, Ian. Thank you. Um, I got lucky, uh, twice, uh, when I was 24, I, I, my background's opera, I'm an opera singer. And, um, I, I fell into HR. A lot of opera singers do weirdly. Uh, my boss, uh, when I was 24, I was running another department in a little startup company in Chicago. And he said, I want you to do HR. And I said, that sounds horrible. I don't want to do that. And he said, no, that's very short-sighted of you. Uh, you think it sounds horrible because you've seen personnel, HR sort of be very administrative and not helpful. So just do it differently. Do it your way. And I said, okay, that will, that's a challenge. Then, I, then I'll do it. He said, okay, your job is simple. We're going to grow really fast. We're trying to 10X sales. And so it has to be a great place to work. And I want you to hire awesome people. That's it. That's the job. Piece of cake. Let's do it. Five years later, I uh, had to leave that job because I was dating a guy there. Now we're married 30 years. But at the time, it was just my boyfriend. and. So you can't be HR manager and have a boyfriend in the company. So I uh, looked around and found a tech startup uh, just five, seven miles away that was likewise getting ready to really explode. And, and they did a um, hundred employees when I went to work there, 10,000 employees like eight years later. Uh, and they said the same thing, make it a fantastic place to work and, um, and hire amazing people. 
So the job was 100% about the culture, right? You have to do all the stuff. Of course, you have to do all the legal stuff and the policies and all the payroll. You do everything, but all in the context of how do we make this an incredible place to work? And the fact is, it's so much easier. It's cheaper. It's faster. It's friendlier. It's healthier. Every single thing gets better when the energy is just, we want you to love working here. And, and I have never really understood, oh, these employees. No, because people don't come oriented like that to hate their job or to be annoying or to complain. They don't and they don't want to. I feel like people are desperately looking for something to attach to that's cool and fizzy and vibrant. And they would love to attach to their workmates and the work and, and, and have ideas. And it's so easy to just open up that energy and say, so what should we be doing here? I don't, I don't have all the answers. What do you guys think? And, and so my advice to leaders is to soften and to give up this shell of fear that I have to be right. And I have to bring the hammer down and we have to enforce these policies. We implemented a policy at at the second company I mentioned, the tech company called US Robotics. You have to be like 45 years old to have even heard of it. But uh, we implemented a policy in 1990. We informally called it the come to work policy. And it said for salaried employees, there's no attendance policy because you're on salary. So we assume the work's going to get done. We would talk to you if the work is not getting done, but where you do it and you know all that, the hours, doesn't matter. Unless there's a standing meeting or there's some customer requirement, obviously. But we never fired anyone because of attendance. Not any salaried employee got fired from that point onward. Because if we fired them, it would be because the work wasn't getting done. So that level of trust is not hard. It's not scary. It's not anything. It's actually what you would expect when you if someone explains to you what a salary job is, they're going to pay you a salary and you're going to do all this work. Okay, cool. It's so much easier. I got to tell our payroll department, we don't track personal days and this days and that days and 14 kinds of days and voting days. And it's they're, they're on salary. Just keep cutting the check. But it takes trust. It just takes trusting yourself enough as a leader to assume that you hired people who are going to do the right thing. Fears went, nope. You get two days of bereavement leave and it better be a parent, a sibling, a child. That's gross. That's horrifying. That's super gross. If we can't see how horrifying that is, we're not going to be able to lead. It is hard to be a leader, but it's not that hard. Eventually, you're going to have to trust your team to work from home, for example. It's just not hard. You would know you manage by exception. There's somebody who's not doing their work. Then then you talk to them about that. But this idea of monitoring people in their house is so dystopian. You are driving away talent. And and if we can't see that, then we're going to really have a hard time doing anything worthwhile. Yeah. As you're talking, Liz, it feels uh, there's a hopeful future that you're painting, right? That people can build and be brave and leaders can be brave to help shape that future uh, where I, I want to live in that, right? Where people love what they do. And, and you're right. Like, People show up that way, um, and you know it, it's 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 amazing how this conversation. And you've been at this for 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 a long time, right? You you've been thousand years, yeah, yeah. yeah you you've been literally. And I remember like early days of LinkedIn, like you've been a voice a voice in the wilderness at times, and yet that continues to create a wave. And now, right, we're seeing these leaders are wrestling with the with these questions and yet you know some are ready or not as far as what they're willing to do uh and is it is it are they really going to bring something to the table right we 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 kind of feel like we're kind of locked locked in that power struggle maybe prisoners dilemma right where leaders are saying well if they do this and then but then nothing nothing happens because to your point earlier that is leadership like they have to be brave first to shape brave enough to shape culture in ways that aren't based on best practice or some, you know, notion that's just like, Hey, that's just going to be that one thing that's, that is benefits me versus wow. Creating something that is truly amazing. And that's high growth. The cultures that are the places that people love, they have 10 X growth, right? Comparative to others. Absolutely. This is uncontrovertible. I remember my, my CEO uh, coming into my office 
and saying, uh, I just read this story in the New York Times that the biggest factor that makes acquisitions and mergers fail is cultural non-fit. And I was like, yay. (laughs) This is like, if you, you know, no, no diss, a genius person, but yes, of course it is. What else would it be? And like you said, the companies that invest, I mean, every pundit, every study has said for 30 years, do the right thing by the employees and everything good will happen. So the question is with all that data, what's the barrier? It's personal and it's fear of losing control. Look at Diamond, the, the, the CEO of, um, of um, Citibank. Uh, you know, I don't trust my employees to, to, to work from home. Okay, well, thank you for telling on yourself. You don't trust them. You hired them through an exacting, arduous uh, uh, recruiting process, and you still don't trust. It means that inside there's like a baby boy that was not cuddled enough. And I don't mean to be dismissive or or disparaging. I'm really speaking literally. What is so scary? What horrible thing could happen if you empowered people and said, you're smart. We hired you. Do the thing. How are we going to grow without everybody's brain power and heart power around this mission? And it's so easy to open that up. It just takes stepping through fear. I think it's amazing that the change management industry, organizational transformation and all that is a multi-billion dollar industry, all devoted to helping organizations change where the prevailing paradigm is change is hard and it's scary. And so people don't want to do it. Who knew that at the core of all that is it's actually the leader's fear, not the employees. It's the leader's fear to open up to change personal change in the way they approach their job. Bingo. That's it. That's what it is. And I've never been in a room with the door closed with the CEO. Not, not one single time have I been in a room with the CEO where they did not, you know, share some of that trepidation. God bless them for, for, for sharing that. And then it's okay. How do we walk through that? How do we take a small step? And then another little step. I feel like my job with respect to CEOs and leaders is to say, I know this is like a scary, dark part of the forest, but I got the lantern right here. Let's just take a step and you'll see what happens. And then another step and it's going to be fine. And I think, you know, the idea of we're going to have this massive change management initiative and take our employees through all this stuff. It's like, you can do that, but unless, unless the leaders are willing to look inside and make personal changes. I don't know if you're going to get the results you want. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, so your background, you know, opera and music, and, you know, we, we believe in this creative future too, right? Where there's this convergence of there's passions that they have, that they have not been able to explore, right? A lot of business has been very head versus heart minded and, and less focused on the creative side. And it feels like people are also, there's this kind of creative propensity, right? Where they want to bring that to the table. How do people express, right? We talk about being authentic, but it's also a sense of, hey, I, wanna, I want to be creative, right, in the workplace. Um, and how do we get towards this sense of who we fundamentally are and our original identities? Uh, and, and for leaders, I mean, I, I really love what you said about that. It's like, wow, they, they, that obstacle of fear is so ever-present for them. But if they were to break through that and personally tap into their creative propensity, their true identity, how would they go about that? I think the creative, what you're saying about creativity is so, so, so true, Chris. It's such an important theme and it does get, it does get squashed. I, um, I wrote a story years and years ago called Fear of Art. <laughs> and it was about my first office job was a temp job. I was in music school in New York, Manhattan School of Music doing vocal performance and, and I'm temping, got tired of waitressing. So I'm temping in an office, Smith Barney, the, 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 the brokerage firm at the time, 40, 50 stories above the, the ice skating rink at Rockefeller center, right there at fifth Avenue and 50th street. And I'm, I'm the temp and they stick me in the room, in a conference room with the door closed. It was like Nirvana all day, just listening to the radio and filling out those um, those yellow inter-office envelopes that they used to have with all the lines 
Rob is like, I heard of that. No, I'm kidding. No, we, we still had them at General Mills when <laughs> I was there. Yeah, totally. Yep. And so there's a, there's a 40 names on the thing and they're all scratched out. Like when the mail got delivered and now there's an empty space and I get to write in a name from a list. It's mindless, but the radio's on and I can think about stuff and I'm doing calligraphy. So I just practice my calligraphy in the little space, you know, f- fancy little things. I got the black Sharpie and I'm going to town. And pretty soon I start to get these envelopes recirculating, coming back into my stack of envelopes, but someone has taken an X-Acto knife and cut out their little name because it's nice. Your name in calligraphy, right? They, they cut it out. And now there's a hole or people send back an envelope with a, with a note calligraphy girl. And they say, Hey, calligraphy girl, um, can you do like the New York times script for my friend who wants his name in the New York times <laughs> script? So, so I'm having this little community with these people. I've never seen them. I don't know their name. I know their names, but I've never talked to them. And I'm like, this is the greatest temp job ever. And my boss comes in and she says, I'm really, really sorry to tell you, Liz, no more calligraphy because my boss says it's disruptive and it, he assumes it's taking way too long and you could be doing faster, just regular block printing. And I said, um, that's, that's really sad because it uplifts people. They're telling me it, they like their name and calligraphy is a nice thing. Some of them cut it out and put it on their bulletin board. And it's like, Ooh, you know, and uh, she said, well, you can't do it. And I said, okay, so now I don't know what to do. Is it, I mean, block printing, like, is that going to be too fancy? Like, where is the line between art and not art? And she's like, yeah, it's 10 in the morning. I'm not having this conversation. <laughs> just, just do it sloppy, do it fast so that nobody will complain. And I said, so art is scary in the business world. Art is scary. It's so deflating. Art is a threat. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like, and, and my approach as an HR manager, I assumed that the job was to create an uplifted emotional experience, like singing in a theater. Right. I want to mm. create a ceremonial, wonderful, uplifted thing like religion without the religion, right? Uh, in a community, isn't that the point of our jobs? To create something bigger and cooler and fizzier and more fun and more vibrant that people will bring with them when they leave here and they'll feel like they're part of something. It seemed extremely obvious to me. When I used to go visit my dad at his office, I it looked like a stage set to me. It looked like a theatrical thing, right? It, it's it's not normal life. And and we should we should embrace that, I think, and say, bring your whole self to work. We want your ideas. We won't implement them all, of course, right away. Who could? But but we want that, we want you to be excited about it. And so my job is as a leader or an HR leader is is to build that excitement from the bottom, to have you feel heard, to have you feel seen. And I'm happy that I still hear from people that I met on their first day in the job 25 years ago that say, I just remember that you came up to me and, and, and you said, where are you from? And I said, Romania. And you started speaking French to me because you know, a lot of people in Romania speak French. And, 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 and I was like, oh my God. And, and I'm like, yeah, well, that's the job to know that in Chicago, that's the job. And, and, and it's the job to say, so did your sister have her baby? What? Tell me it's, it's your job to make it not transactional, to care about people at a deeper level. And yes. every leader has that. And that's why that show, I got a rant. Undercover boss just <laughs> horrified me. I hope it's off the air because it says that you talk can about be a, a leader lot. of a yeah. corporation and they don't know your face and they don't know your name or your voice. What the hell is that? No connection. How are you a leader? That That's sickening. I mean, apart from get rid of your PR person who booked you on that show, right. because <laughs> what the hell? But also, what's your problem? That you can go out there is that cool? That means you're 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 locked behind fifteen levels of guards or something. They don't Layers. know you. Yeah, just retire, dude. Just <laughs> just just hang it up. That's not leadership to me. Leadership is present. It's they know you. They know how you think, and they know you're responsible for this whole place. And and if you're not doing that, I don't know. I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, I love how you've brought in some elements from your past experiences, the calligraphy example, that is so relatable for so many people. And it may be that, you know, in their version of the story, they altered the format of a template, but they felt like it would work better. But they had the same conversation with their boss afterwards where they said, you know what, we need you to stay in your lane, do what you were supposed to be doing before. And I think that it highlights this idea that we all have this innate 
need to be creative in some way. It doesn't mean that we're at an easel with a brush, but in some context in all of our work, there are those opportunities to take something that was disorganized and bring order to it or to put something together in a new combination. And um, yes, there is some, I think, ambiguity with that. And I can see why a manager might be afraid of that process, maybe because they haven't explored it in their own lives. But man, there are so many possibilities that are out there if people would be willing to just sort of take their hands off the wheel a little bit and let someone else take a turn. It's the truth, Rob. Isn't that the beauty, though, of creative expression in terms of a culture or a workplace culture? It's like these little hidden surprises that come out when someone takes that initiative to be brave and to express, you know, their creative identity and to, in, in hopes to make a difference in the lives of others. Right. I don't think it's soft skills. I think that degrades, you know, the notion of what we need to lean into it's human skills Truth. and not all of us have been Truth. raised and, or educated in a similar way where, where these truths are evident to us, but these are human elements that need to be developed. And it, that's the hard part in leadership is being able to recognize that within yourself, within your team, within the people. Yeah. I, I think that the other, on that notion too, is like that human side, right? Which I think in undercover boss, I'm glad you mentioned that list <laughs> right? because it's a joke. Like we, we, we talk about it that one too. And you know, it, you could call it inhuman boss, Thank right? You. Where they're like surprised by the Thank fact you. that like, Oh, these are actually people, yeah. right. That, you know, and how often are leaders, have they created this fake world in their head of that everybody's a prop basically, right? And, and my favorite leader of all time was a friend, was he became a very good friend of mine and he led an organization of 300 of us. And he said, who's the most important this person in this organization? And, you know, everybody's, and this is like big meeting with all of us and actually all the leadership and you know, they, they were raising their hand. Oh, you, right. You, he's like, no, not me. Oh, well this, your assistant. No. Uh, you know, the board, no, not them. Who's the most important person he said that the person who's in the front line, who's doing the work, they are the most important person in this organization. And I'll never forget it. Right. And, and he treated people that way. And you could feel, you know, that underlying it, it's a humanity and it's, 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 it's really a, it's, a, it's love. It's a force of, of, of who we are. And that moves people. I mean, to your point about culture, it's okay. We, we can sit here and, you know, contrive all this new language, uh, to describe these things so that consultants get paid mm -hmm. and they have a fresh buzzword you know, for tomorrow, or we could spend the time of actually just living it and embodying right. it right. and being real as human beings right. and leaders who just recognize that we have you know, a heartbeat and we want to right. understand to your point, like, okay, well, where are they at in their life? Right. There's this happening and how can we help support them in that? How's it felt too, as, as, as this wave has started to shift, right. Where, you know, maybe leaders in the past weren't even open to these conversations. Now they're, they're talking about culture more than they ever have. Now culture is being slapped as a sticker on everything. That's a whole other conversation, right? The interesting thing, I, I'll tell you how, how, how it feels. Um, is, you know, validating. <laughs> I mean, when, when I, when I, when LinkedIn was new, I actually was writing about LinkedIn before the site launched. I wrote a little story for a real simple magazine and that got, uh, Constantine Garrico, one of the founders to call me and say, why don't you come and visit us? I like your, what you are saying about LinkedIn. And so I got, I actually visited LinkedIn as they were launching and then and then continued, you know, to be there and, and started writing for them years later and so on. But the first few columns that I wrote when LinkedIn had its, its platform, they don't really, they don't really encourage or promote long form stories anymore, but for a long time they did. And I was like, Oh, I'm putting this out there. Like, Oh, I don't know what's going to happen because the ideas I thought would, were kind of new to a lot of people and would raise more questions than answers. And so that was the energy for a long time. And then it slowly started to shift. And I'm very happy now when people say, yeah, of course, of course, of course you say that. Yes. Thank you for saying that because it is of course, but it just takes a while to get there. I mean, I was brought up with a different understanding of work. Your boss is your boss and they rule and 
you know, now we say, well, if the job doesn't suit you, you can go work somewhere else. You actually have more power than they do because all they have is fear or trust to get you to do what they want you to do. Most organizations, unfortunately, choose fear, threats, right? Um, But the boss has limited power over you. You have the ability to go somewhere else or start your own business. And actually, the, the more junior someone is, the lower level the job, let's say a fast food job, they have the most, uh, they're, they're in a tough spot, obviously, economically and in this formal power structure, but they have a lot of power personally because they can get another job in half an hour. The people who are the most in fear are the senior VPs that you would think would have all this power because on the org chart, they have a big job and they have a budget and everything. They're terrified because they say, if I lose this, I lose 400 grand and I don't know how to replace it. And they are not going to buck their CEO. So true. Whereas yeah. the entry level person will. And, and that senior VP, I thought as a, as a baby HR person, that as you went up the org chart, people would have more wherewithal. That's what I thought. The entry level person is like, I'm going to do what they say, but if this place doesn't work for me anymore, I'm going to go with, work with my cousin. You know, like they had their plan B already identified. The manager, you'd think they'd have more power. They'd be like, no, I have to listen to my director. I can't, I can't do anything. Directors of one or I'll get a bad performance review. The director, you'd think they have power. They're like, no, 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 no. My VP is on my ass. You know, I have to. Okay. Well, the VP, they have power. They're like, nah, are you kidding me? We just bought a new house. I can't. But they say the CEO, well, they've got all the power. They go, no, my board. Oh, Wall Street, man. I can't. I'd like to do what you're saying, Liz, but Wall Street. I got to have these earnings. Okay. So Wall Street rules you. Yes. These pension funds and these, they, they call the shots. Okay. So who's, who's in charge of their life? The person on the loading dock, because there's another loading dock across the street they could go to. Who's in charge of their life? And why isn't that the topic that we're all talking about all day long? Especially when we're talking about culture, because culture is an energy field that you create. Kills me this argument. You can't work from home because of our culture. Oh, no, you are not allowed to invoke culture that way because you never gave a damn about culture before. And now you've never even talked about it. But now you're going to use it like a cudgel. You're going to weaponize culture. And by the way, CEOs do not control the culture. That's the one thing they don't control because the culture is this ephemeral. It's how people feel. Is there fear in the environment or is there trust? They can CEO can create the, uh, the bed for that. They can, they can add structurally and in their policies and their communication, more trust or more fear, but they don't control the culture. How dare you? That's something that the employees own and they know it and they feel it and they communicate it and they talk about it. So the idea that, well, our culture demands, nope, nope. Emperor has no clothes right there because you're not in charge of the culture. Yeah. It seems like, yeah, there's also this feel that people have. I I love you mentioned, you know, about culture that way. It's like they don't get to decide and it, culture is grassroots. The energy field, as you said, and, and it's the reality that the power that we have, right. Of, of people, people may feel disempowered, but the reality is, is they want to feel it and they actually have the power. They can say, you know what, this is in my home now. And there are certain things I allow in my home and certain things I don't. Yes. And I want a certain f- vibe, a certain feeling and you know, where leaders weren't even, they weren't even asking that question before. What do people feel? I don't care what they feel, right? That's right. Just, they've got to do checkbox and get this done. <laughs> um, but how, you know, how, how is that, you know, how does that look going forward? I mean, now we don't know how, I mean, with the amount of change that's been happening, uh, what things will look like going forward, but certainly we're at a point now where people have this power and they don't even sometimes know it. You made so many good points there, Chris. Um, in terms of feeling your power and using your power as a, as a working person, as a manager, as a leader, I mean, every leader is also a working person, right? They're also an employee. So they're on both sides of that question. And that can be a tough place to be. Let me be quick to say. Uh, you're going to understand. The first thing to do is examine your environment from altitude, right? So you're at your desk and you can see the other desks figuratively or literally, you know what your role is, what other people's role is. And we, we often get hung up and we have conflict around those transactions. Well, this department's supposed to do this, but this guy hates me and he's a jerk. And and we, and we have all this political strife, allocation of scarce resources. And my boss doesn't give me enough, you know, leeway, or he doesn't listen to my ideas. 
get altitude, see how the organization works. How does it fit together? All the pieces, how does it make money? And what do they need to do? What's the obstacle they're trying to surmount? Because there's always one or several, right? The more ownership you have at a high level of your role, whether you're the most entry-level person in the place or whether you're senior executive, the more empowered you're going to be, the more you understand how the business world works. If you are conspiracy minded, <laughs> you will ask why we learn accounting in school or, or in college anyway, and math and all this stuff, but not how the business world works or how the economy works. Hmm. Right. Some people feel like the school system itself was developed to populate the factories when the United States was going through its industrialization boom after the civil war. And so, you know, it's not about empowering you. It's like equipping you to go and sit at that desk. I personally was horrified when I left Nirvana kindergarten, play all day, have fun, snacks, nap, chill with my homies. Like what could be better to first grade where I'm sitting in a desk in a row and getting yelled at if I, if I am not looking at the teacher, this is prison. I don't know how I got through that for 12 years. I don't actually only 11. I left high school early to go to music school because it was too much. So I don't know where it's going with that. So, so getting altitude on the system and how it works and how you fit into it, that's empowering right there. The second thing is to say, okay, so here's what I contribute. I do brute cause analysis in the software development organization. Okay. And that's important. How does that help? this organization accomplish its goals. Where is the pain that I solve? If you understand what pain you relieve for employers, you get power. Then who else might have that pain? If this should go south at some point, and I have to expect that it will, and maybe it won't, but I'm probably not going to have this job when I retire or stop working because people don't retire anymore unless they work for the post office, right? They just stop working. And probably they go to work for themselves before they stop working. Most often. So how am I going to manage that? I got to get out of my Plato's cave here and pay attention to the bigger picture. And then really the big, big, big picture, I'm not going to be alive forever. And what do I want to do with my gifts and my time while I am alive versus when I'm not? And this is hard and people don't want to think about it, but it's like, it's very freeing when you do. And so getting power is not a matter of pleasing your boss so that they bestow more power on you with a crown and a gold star on your forehead, but looking for where your power already is in you and finding the place where you can let that flow. And it's the same thing for managers. You get power when you speak up because you use the power you've got and you put a ripple out there in the, in the water and they like it or they don't like it. And if they really don't like it, you might accelerate your plan B. But generally what happens is some people don't like it when you speak. And then people say, wait, that person has a good point. That's what happened to me as a baby HR person, because it was basically a clerical job. And I had to tell supervisors, no, you're not firing that person. You're mad at them. You're mad at them. You're angry at them because you two had some personal thing. They probably ruffled your feathers by saying something you were not expecting them to say that you felt was out of place. But that's just your ego. It's fine. Let it go. Go to sleep tonight and just forget about it and come back tomorrow in the morning and it won't even be an issue. No, I want to fire them. No, that's 1945 stuff. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. I'm HR. I'm telling you, we have to rise above. And I'll be happy to uh, mediate if the two of you want to sit down. We can talk about it. But we're not doing a thing where supervision means you will bend to my will. That's not. That's out. And you do that enough times, people start to say, oh, she, 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 she knows something. She has backbone. She'll... She's trying to do the right thing for the organization, not for me, what I feel I need in this particular instant. And it goes all the way up to CEO level and beyond. And you say, you know, my, I appreciate that my CEO used to say to me, thank you so much for whispering in my ear when, when I need to hear it. Thank you for being my backbone stiffener when I have to tell some VP they can't do some harebrained thing that they want to do. I say, always, of course, because we all need a conciliary, right? <laughs> we all need somebody helping us do the right thing. And, and, and we have to acknowledge, like you said, these hum the human side of work. It's nonsense that work is linear and data-driven and analytical. That's such a dodge. That's such bullshit. I mean, come on. Yeah, sure it is. Sure it is. Ego has nothing to do with it. I'm sure. Right? Like, come on. 
come on. How come every head coach of a football team comes in and gets rid of some lousy player that the other coach was like, no, 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 because they hired that person. And it was the sunk cost thing. I'm going to stick with them for years, right? It's ego. And we have to embrace the fact that we have egos. It's okay, but we have to be able to talk about that and not gussy it up like, oh, no, it's all data-driven and analytical. I did a consulting project for a CEO. Now it can be told. 15 years later, I said, I just don't understand why your second biggest office is in Rapid City, South Dakota. What What is there? Oh, it's just we found that the demographics and the workforce, I'm like, for what you're trying to do? Okay. All right. I, I, I'm, I'm, it's just very odd. And we just kept talking about it and they were like, just let it go. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm curious. I'd just love to know what was the process at the time. Oh, his girlfriend lives there. The CEO's girlfriend is there. <laughs> well, thank you for at least clarifying. I appreciate Now we know it. what we're dealing with. <laughs> now we know what we're dealing with. It's okay. Right. It's probably not okay with his actual spouse, but that's a whole different conversation. Let's be honest. Let's just say we have needs, we have ego, we have tempers, we have old traumas unaddressed, we have all these things, and we want to feel safe. And and sometimes we manifest that in unhealthy ways. We'll just talk about it. Liz, you you are a superhero. Oh, well, you're super sweet, Ian. And I'm really glad you you folks had me here today. It's fun. But uh, I think, you know, if you're, you're talking about this stuff on the podcast and you're talking about it with your clients, you're doing a good deed because this is this is uh, the, this is what has to happen is that CEOs have to have to say, apart from the structure and the policy and the initiatives and the operating plan and, and, and all of that, what can we do to lift up the energy here so that people want to come here and they want to stay? This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co-hosts and BraveCore founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. Special thanks to Liz Ryan for spending a few minutes with us and getting us all fired up about bringing humanity back to the workplace. Liz is the founder and CEO of Human Workplace, a coaching, content, and consulting firm focused on reinventing work with a human voice. More information about Human Workplace is in our show notes. If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at BraveCore, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of BraveCore LLC. Thanks for being with us. 